We're really honored to be here in Susanville for tonight's event, What Would the End of Mass Incarceration Mean for Prison Towns? And we're proud to partner with the California Wellness Foundation for this event. It's part of our editorial series on the future of prisons and their neighboring communities as we turn away from mass incarceration in California. You can read those essays and uh, more articles on our website. Our moderator tonight is Carrie Blakinger. Carrie is a staff writer at the Marshall Project where she reports on prisons and jails and writes the column Inside Out, which is a collaboration with NBC News. She's also the author of Corrections in Ink, which is out this June. Over to you, Carrie. Um, I'm glad to be here. Um, thanks for having me. I've, uh, I was thinking about it. I've really spent a lot of time in prison towns over the years, um, first as a prisoner, I was on the inside, and then as a reporter covering prison towns. So it's really great to be here and be part of this conversation. And um, my panelists here, I have um, Alma Beltran, who's the mayor of Parlier. Um, she's the first female Latina to serve as mayor there. And before that was a corrections officer for 13 years. Um, and over here, we have John Eason, who's an associate professor of sociology at University of Wisconsin-Madison and the director of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Justice Lab. He uh, studies um, health rates, punishment, and um, he writes about prison towns also. Um, Trevor Albertson is the superintendent and president of Lassen Community College here in Susanville, and he earned his PhD in foreign policy at UC Merced and is the author of Winning Armageddon. Um, so I wanted to start with you. <laughs> I was wondering if you could just sort of start some by laying out the problem, explaining how much Susanville is dependent on the prison as is. So the, the, the big thing you always got to start with in Susanville is there's about three stories, all of which compete to explain the same thing. And it's because everybody's got their own version of it. But the reality is of how we get to Susanville, the prison town, is, is pretty simple, and, and, it, and it goes back to the earliest days of, of Susanville, uh, when this was still Root County. And the big part of it was that you had a lot of young men here, and that meant you had a lot of labor, and that was why it was a good place to site mills, it was a good place to site uh, you know, agriculture, there was a good reason to do those things here. Um, not only did things grow well here, not only did you have timber nearby, but you had the people that could do the job. And that was part of what the state understood and studied when they decided, where are we going to site a prison? Where has got distance from major metropolitan areas? Where has um, relatively small population area around it, small communities around it, but enough young men that are going to be willing to work in these prisons um, as not necessarily free staff, but as guards um, for the wage they were paying at the time? And Susanville was one of those places. Um, and in the 1960s, with you know, a fairly conservative turn in, in some ways in the state of California, you know, cleaning up the mess in Berkeley, as Reagan put it, um, they began building more prisons. And, and part of that, too, was because the banks, the big banks at the time, got very wise to lobbying the legislature that they needed to get tough on crime. And oh, by the way, when you get tough on crime, that means come back to us so we can loan you the money to build the prisons. And so this sort of begins this snowball effect. Well, they build the first one here in Susanville, I think it was 65, 66, 67, somewhere in that range. And it was about the time that the first prison, CCC, California Correctional Center, opened that the mills started having a tougher and tougher time. 
and they began this slow closure rate that began, it ended up in, I think, 2005. 2004 or 5, the last mill closes in Susanville. And everybody's always blamed it on environmental regulation. The reality is that the prison simply paid more than the mill, and it was very difficult to get people to want to do mill work when it was easier and more lucrative to do prison work. And the companies recognized that. Did environmental factors have a, a role? Probably at some point, some level. But it was really population pressure and economic pressure that did it. And so Susanville became very invested in the prisons that are here. So, um, you know, as a reporter, I cover prisons a lot. I know that they are, you know, they're bad for, like, the people that are experiencing incarceration. They're also bad for the people that work there. I mean, in the sense that that's a not great work environment in a lot of ways. I don't, you know, in Texas, for instance, they're not air-conditioned. That's, that's a pretty strenuous work environment. Um, and, you know, there's always the sort of threat of violence. I mean, it can be extremely stressful. Why do people want to be prison staff? Why do they want to be prison guards? Well, it's an opportunity for, uh, of course, having a way to be able to have a livelihood and be able to provide for your family. But it also brings you a lot more opportunity for advancement in, in, in the prison. You can grow into other d departments, you can promote, so there's opportunities that you can seek for more higher pay. It is, it is a very um, dangerous environment. I do know that, I've been around that. But at the end of the day, uh, it does help a way for you to be able to provide for your family without having to worry about layoffs, having to worry about, oh, well, you know, it's a job security. Your, you know, crime is always gonna be there. So you would think, well, this is the, that's the reason why I did it. You know, I was working for a nonprofit in the prison before for reentry program. They were talking about disbanding that program and not have it anymore with the state. So then I said, you know what, if I'm here, I already know how it is, might as well just go into the prison work as a correctional officer and have job security. I won't have to worry about, oh darn, they're gonna lay me off, I'm not gonna be able to have a job. I have to start all over again and try to figure out what am I gonna do. So to me, it was easier to just say, okay, let's just go through the process, go through the academy, um, go through all the process that I need to go to be able to provide for my family. Job security is one of the main reasons why I went into that position as, as a correctional officer. But then once I did that job, you know, it's, it's an environment, yes, it's a dangerous environment, but at the end of the day, you also get to interact a lot with the inmates there as far as talking to them. I know that I've, I've dealt with young kids that come in, they're 18 years old, now that the prison is allowing them to come into the actual prison at 18 years of age. So you kind of try to talk to them, to straighten them out, to do better, to not end up coming back again. I would always talk to the young kids, do you want to be a lifer? So also by helping others, you can also do that work inside without having to be in a nonprofit program. You could still talk to them and kind of, you know, give them encouragement to be able to do better. Okay. Um, so John, I'm, I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit sort of broader historical context in terms of how we got here, how we got to the point of there being so many prison towns, so many prison towns in rural areas, how the big buildup of prisons happened nationally. So we often focus on uh, the cause of uh, how prisons have caused a lot of inequality. What's overlooked in that discussion 
is how prisons actually uh, are built uh, from inequality. So rural America built about 700 of the 1,000 prisons that have been constructed since 1970. Um, and rural communities that had higher poverty rates uh, and more inequality, especially racial inequality, uh, are more likely to have a prison. Uh, states that have higher uh, inequality built more prisons. Um, the other counter, very counterintuitive thing, although we often focus on the role of uh, private prisons or privatization, is the fact that 87% of prisons were built by state and federal authorities. Most of those were built by state departments of corrections. So in a place like California, um, where a lot of this debate is taking place uh, about prison, about the prison boom, the buildup of prisons, and even prison closures, uh, what's interesting is California isn't even a top five prison builder. Um, Oklahoma, for example, has built more prisons than uh, California. A lot of the inequality in the rural South in particular is where uh, the prison boom has taken place. And that's because of uh, disinvestment, under, underdevelopment, um, the, uh, the flight of manufacturing and other, uh, other shifts in industry, like, uh, um, for example, uh, you know, big, big, uh, big farms, you know, instead of these family farms, we move to uh, corporate farming. So that's displaced a lot of people, a lot of uh, workers and the like. What, what I really focus on in having this conversation is the fact that people are dispossessed by the prison itself, uh, the individuals that churn through the system, but also what we've missed in this discussion is places, and rural places in particular. Many people come from rural America, and we know about this brain drain and this uh, hole that exists where there's a lot of young people and a lot of old people in rural America, as we can see in the audience tonight, right? Um, and by old, I mean older than me. My 16-year-old calls me oldie every morning. So um, what, what we do know is that there are opportunities in rural America, uh, but we haven't focused enough and given rural communities enough uh, of the proper attention to wean themselves off of caging people. Um, and that's why I'm excited to be here tonight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the um, one of the other things that's interesting about the displacement that you're mentioning is that I think we don't think about it a lot in terms of staff. I think there's sort of a broad assumption that a lot of prison staff um, have always lived in the in the town where they're being employed. But I, you know, I found again and again in writing about prison towns, um, and it's more true I think in some prison systems than others that a lot of the time the staff are coming from out of town as well. So. I mean, they're, they're displacing people in different directions in different ways. Um, I, I was also um, wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about the sort of time frame of this, because I think that uh, Susanville was built sort of before the big prison buildup, which I think is sort of interesting in terms of how we think about how that influenced how the town sees itself. And I don't know, can you sort of put that in some context? So Susanville is very atypical. Um, you, you built a little bit early. The prison was cited here a little bit early before the huge boom. Uh, and from which really it starts in the 70s, but explodes in the 80s and through the 90s. 
Um, the demographics of your town are very different, even over time, even accounting for the large number of people uh, in the census uh, that are incarcerated, the incarcerated persons. You're very atypical in a lot of ways. Uh, also, uh, in terms of your um, party affiliation for voting and the, the like in presidential elections, you guys know this, maybe the uh, audience online doesn't know this, you're not just a very Republican uh, county and city, you're like twice uh, the most, the average, you're twice uh, the Republican voting patterns that we see in a lot of towns in California, uh, and this is a very blue state. So this makes the dynamics of what's happened here uh, since your prisons have come, uh, and the possibility, the probability, the probability of one, at least one of them leaving, even more uh, interesting, right? Given your party affiliation and the fact that Democrat, Democratic leg state legislatures are more likely to build prisons, and also Democratic voting uh, counties. Uh, I have some papers I'm working on uh, showing this. The Democratic counties, uh, counties that vote Democratic um, in elections, and presidential elections, are more likely to build prisons since the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So you're an outlier in a lot of ways, um, but you're very typical in other ways. Um, I think that the pattern that we've seen historically with prisons being built um, and where we're gonna go with them, uh, you do fall within, within the uh, bounds of that, like the, your mills closing, and whether or not the, the prisons cause the mills to close uh, is one thing, but we can, we can look at these patterns over a, a large span of time and see that manufacturing, mining, uh, other types of industry, farming, all as those declined over time, we've sort of place, replaced uh, uh, those industries with a public works project. And the fact that Democrats, democratically led legislators, uh, legislatures uh, built out prisons, right? It speaks to the public works nature of these projects. This is a public, the great public works project of the last 50 years, right? Before, since we've done the WPA and other great public works projects, this has been it for rural America since 1970. So, um, so Trevor, um, another question for you. So you talked some about the, how the prisons came in here in Susanville, um, but I'm wondering if you can also give um, a little more of a sense of how dependent the town is on the prisons now. It, and it depends who you ask, right? And then, you know, causation, correlation, two very different things. So on the one hand, you know, I always, I, I sit around, I talk to the staff in my office on a fair amount about kind of, what was Susanville like way back when, you know, mm -hmm. like in the 90s, way back when? Not that far long ago, but when we talk about it, you know, it, there was a more vibrant town here in terms of commercial activity. Um, and it, and it's, it's sort of the story of, I think that at some point there was two Basque restaurants or a Basque restaurant and a steakhouse. And, and even up at the, at the Pioneer when that was open, they served Basque stew, right? Now you can get none of those things in town, essentially. And it's because there's a certain amount of, of a demographic shift in terms of what interests certain folks as opposed to what interests long-term folks that have been in the community 
tastes, desires, buying patterns. And really, it shakes out like this, is that Susanville, I, I would argue, is more commercially diverse in the years prior to um, really high desert probably opening. Based on what I've been told, what I've learned, you know, annoying people around town when I ask them, hey, tell me about this. Why is it this way here? And a lot of it goes back to a big shift right in that 03 to 06 time frame. And right in the middle of that is really where high desert opened up and brought with it another influx of, of folks, not necessarily all from outside the area, but of shifting patterns that went with it, shifting interests, desires. And a few things happened in that. The, the Army base drastically changed um, down the road. Um, its, its employment patterns changed. There were fewer active duty people now, fewer civilian employees. Um, there are uh, you know, fewer mills. The mills closed in 2005. I think it was the last one is 2005. Um, and as a result, really, you, know, you had this one industry. And so people you know, gravitating where the jobs are. I mean, it's, it's a population pressure ultimately at that point. And with it, with that lifestyle came new desires, interests, and tastes. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's shifted the town in a way that is less vibrant in a lot of people's opinions, commercially, and even in terms of maybe civic activity. Um, one of the things that I remember we talked about before this was the impacts that a potential closure would have on the college. Yeah, yeah. So Lassen College is the number one servicer of justice-involved individuals in the state of California, and we even service some out of state as well. And, you know, the first thing I always say when I talk about that is how often I lay awake at night saying, is this a good or a bad thing that I am making money essentially for my college off of the fact people are in prison? Yet we still do a good thing by offering education to those that are in prison, mm -hmm. right? Ensuring that they have access to education like any human being should. And when the closure of CCC was announced, we, we, you know, we sat down with our data folks and my VPs and I said, okay, basically here's the situation. What do we expect to lose or gain on this? Because we didn't know. We didn't know what was gonna happen. And, and the first thing that we realized was that, well, we're gonna lose these two full-time programs we got out there. And off the top of the head, that's about 200 full-time enrollments. Now, the next thing we did is, so how do we recoup those, right? So here we are making a business decision based upon how much business we can do in a prison, which in and of itself seems somewhat cold, but at the same time, we're trying to provide education to folks. And we got to the end of this thing and it, we figured out we actually didn't really lose anything on it because we just kicked the other colleges out of the other prison because we have exclusive rights in our area to that prison, to access that prison because the way the state sets up college districts. So in the end, we've actually seen an increase in enrollments despite the fact that CCC is closing. Overall, the campus is seeing a fall in enrollments and that's due to COVID. But the one constant has been justice-involved individuals. That has not changed. So is your, is your enrollment already falling from CCC even though it hasn't closed yet? CCC, yeah, our enrollment's way off on CCC, and that's largely because uh, a number of the, the folks that are in there have left. They've been either sent home or sent somewhere else. And, you know, my first concern of this is, okay, wait a minute, what's going to happen to my students? Right, because these are, these are folks that are enrolled in a course that are trying to get to something, and, and multiple motivations, you know, finish a degree, good credit, I get out a little earlier. Um, I think both of those are good things. Mm -hmm and I don't see the conflict between them. Um, but 
that was our first concern. Where do they go and what do they get on the other end? And, and I have to say, that was one where I, I thought CDCR did a pretty good job working with us to make sure we got them to the next thing, whether that was another college program or one of ours at another institution. Um, couldn't make it work for everybody, but we, we did our best. Where I think it has been troubling and, and really problematic in specific when it comes to the closure of CCC is the not knowing. And I, I know that wears on our folks in town. I know that wears on the folks that work at the institutions. Nobody's asked the question, what's it doing to the people that are living inside that prison? How's it impacting their psyche? And one of the things I really wanna see is show me a study of what was the GPA before announcement, after announcement of closure, and then during the process. Because I mean, it's a big indicator. Again, you know, causation correlation, like I said at the outset, but that's, that's the kind of stuff we need to be thinking about. Okay, one, one more follow-up. Yeah, um, so are you hearing anything? Are, are, you in, are you hearing anything from your students as to how they feel about it? So, <clears throat> not, not to me directly, though I do go out to the institutions. I, I, I go, in fact, I feel safer there than anywhere else, man. Because I'll tell you what, you walk in that yard and you're one of the people bringing them college, you're the coolest dude in the world. And... One of the things is I will talk to folks when I'm out there. They're my students. I mean, it doesn't matter what, that you're there or anywhere. You're my student, right? And the other half of it is when I do talk to them, it's usually about where they want to go and what they want to do next. It's hope, right? You, know, you can't. Human spirit is tough to kill. That is the first thing I see every time I go in and visit the prison. The second thing is they want to know when they can get their next class. And then the third thing is, hey, I need some more pencils. Where do I get these things? You know, it's like, okay, we'll figure that out. Now, all that said, what I'm hearing through my deans and my VPs at this point, um, I think there's some confusion. I think there is concern. And it's tough because when you can't control your own life, how can you control your own education? You know, when you've had most of your rights taken away from you, how can you walk up just at any time when you got a minute to do it to the registrar's office and say, hey, I need to do this? And so while I'm not hearing those complaints directly, I know they're there. They've got to be there. Because I remember what I felt as a student going to school without all this encumbrance. And here I've got students going to school in a prison. Yet they see it as their greatest hope. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a mixed bag. Um. Yeah, I can I can definitely I can definitely relate to that. Just sort of the, one of the things when I was in prison, just the difficulty of getting answers to any questions, like big questions, like is the prison closing, but also like you know, is this class going to be available in the future, or even just if you ask what time it is, like sometimes you don't get a straight answer on that. So um, yeah, I can imagine the the way that the uncertainty would impact like how you can plan for your future, which you can only do in such a limited way in prison to begin with, you know. Um, so I, I was wondering, I know that you, I, I know that you've lived in a prison town for a while. Um, so I was wondering if you could sort of talk some about, you know, how prison towns feel about being prison towns, or if you've gotten any sense of that in the places you've lived. Um, well, uh, one thing I can say is that, um, I didn't work in Susanville, but, uh, Avenal is just like Susanville. It's in an area where really nothing around. It's also... Uh, had the mills there too, and so um, a lot of those jobs were created for 
their community when it was brought to their council in uh, regards to building an institution there at Avenal. And so majority of the people that live there do work at Avenal. Um, you have like at least 25 to 30%. And the new hires that they get and live in some other town will actually purchase either a house there or rent an apartment there. And that I know because I know that with my coworkers, they would work overtime, so they don't wanna drive an hour away you know, after they work 16 hours. So they would wanna have a place to stay so they can feel that you know, it's safe. I could drive to the apartment, sleep, go back in the morning, work again. So a lot of the jobs that are created with this institution, with this example with Avenal, it was 1,200 jobs at Avenal that it created. And that's with correctional officers was 740, and the other ones were free staff, um, health, uh, mental health uh, care, um, the nurses, medical staff. You know, you also have the contractors that do come in that are not directly uh, paid through the state, but are subcontracted through the state, which that's something that I used to do, and provide services for um, the inmates for rehabilitation, for reentry programs. You know, that's something that I used to do to prepare them to when they would um, <clears throat> enter their, go back to their community. You want them to be successful and be able to be on their own because a lot of the stuff that now is happening with the ma massive release of inmates, that is pro the problem that we have with homelessness. There are at least more than 50%, close to maybe 50% of when my institution, where I was at, that a lot of them were paroling homeless because a lot of the times you have families that don't want to have anything to do with them so they don't have the support system. So they go to the community and if people complained about living conditions in the institution, well, what are the living conditions outside? So I think that the things that we need to focus on, if it's if the closure is due to budgetary or not, I'm not quite sure what's going on because the mentions of closure had happened even with Avenal. When I was there in 2009 with AB 109, the realignment, the you know, overcrowding, a lot of that was talks about closing Avenal. So to me is like, what is the, what is the solution instead of closing it, maybe be proactive instead of reactive and um, having more programs maybe outside because the, all the programs that they offer for the in, inmates in the institution are inside. And that I can say because I was one of them that provided you know, uh, reentry programs, like to find them the resources, where are they gonna stay, find, try to find them a shelter, try to find ways to make sure that they're not gonna be on the streets and not have a place to stay. So um, the jobs that are created are not always just directly um, uh, for the people in the community, but also it brings like, you know, you're gonna stop at the gas station, you're gonna go to the grocery store, you're gonna go, you know, do business in that community. Even though you may not live there, you still have to, you know, purchase gas, get the gas, and, you know, just all those things to have a big way in a lot into what comes into that community. If Avenal wouldn't be there, Susanville wouldn't be there for, I mean, the, the prison wouldn't be there for Susanville, what would be here? You know, you wouldn't have the growth that I see here. Uh, there's a lot of growth um, from what I've seen, from pictures from before and now. And I could tell you that even with Avenal, they had a lot of growth as well. You know, there's more people willing to purchase a home that would probably would never even consider it in the past. So 
Um, I, you know, I think that, I think that what you said about um, the numbers in terms of prisoners that are homeless getting out, um, that sounds like that's very atypical about, um, for Avenal, because I did look up that data, because we talked about this, in, you know, before, mm -hmm. and it's actually something like 10 to 15 percent um, nationally. So that's very atypical what you're describing, mm -hmm. just to be clear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but also, I, I did want to sort of push back on the notion that um, conditions in prisons are better than in the free world, because that's um, simply not true. Um, I'm going to actually... Uh, you, you have to, the fact that this is even a debate uh, <laughs> about the conditions in the free world versus prison, uh, and I'm saying this as someone who has, uh, so six out of ten uh, Americans know someone or has a family member incarcerated. Eight out of ten African Americans do, right? Um, but there are some communities, uh, I, I have a paper where I start with this awful joke by Chris Rock, where he talks about um, uh, the difference between uh, a, a new jail and an old project, right? And he's saying that conditions outside are catching, they're so bad, they're catching up to conditions inside, right? And he makes, this is a very crude joke, right? When you think about this, how people are, are living, mm -hmm. uh, this was actually um, one of my respondents uh, in Forest City uh, where I moved my family. Uh, I moved my family to rural Arkansas to write this book, Big House on the Prairie, Rise of the Rural Ghetto, and Prison Proliferation. I'm not plugging it to plug it. I'm plugging it because it's a story about rural America. I get like a cup of coffee off of this. So Margie's book nook has a couple of copies. If you want to buy me a cup of coffee, go get the book. But basically, uh, there are residents who are touring the Forest City Federal Correctional Facility before it opens, and they uh, compare it to houses, the housing stock in Forest City, and they say, oh, this place looks great. This is way better than some of the places that we have people living in in Forest City, right? So the fact that that's even a debate, mm -hmm. right, speaks to the inequality that, that exists in this country. And if we're gonna talk about um, taking away, just as people who have been incarcerated uh, are precarious and they have a lot of challenges, if we're gonna talk about taking away prisons from rural communities that have grown dependent on it, and to back up a lot of what Alma has said, it took me seven years to get a paper published in the academic journals. They did not like what I was writing because I, I did an analysis showing that Towns that got prisons, uh, when you compared them to towns that were similar, right, the ones that got a prison had better median, they got a rise in their median home value. Mm -hmm. That backs up a lot of what you're saying. They got a rise in the median family income. They saw a decrease in unemployment. And they also saw a decrease in poverty. So there's, rural people aren't silly, right? They didn't just do, they, just, they didn't just want prisons for some weird reason, like, you know, they have these uh, dreams of beating people every day or something. I don't think most humans do that, right? Um, we've given, we've, we've had these communities become uh, reliant on caging people, and that is a fundamental problem. That is the fundamental problem, because rural communities are actually sending more people to prison now more than ever, and quite separately, so are white people. The white, whites are going to prison 
at an all-time high rate. The, actually, the disproportionate rate of incarceration has seen a, a little decrease, the black-white disproportionate rate, because so many white people are going to prison and so many rural communities are suffering this churning, right? So life overall, Carrie, not to like push back against you or try and defend, <laughs> life overall is just hard. That's what the Chris Rock joke is about. When life is so hard, it's catching up. When life on the outside is catching up to what's going on in prison, you know things are bad, right? Uh, and homelessness, uh, not just homelessness, but just basically un uncertainty, right? Um, so this is, we're, we're at a crossroads. We're, we're gonna have to make some tough choices as a country. Um, California is gonna have to make some very difficult choices moving forward. Right, because it's not like the the prisons here in Susanville are just for people in San Francisco and L.A. The people in this in this community, people in communities like this, are going to prison more and more. Um, so there was a specific question for you that has come in about um, why are Democratic areas more likely to build prisons? So racial composition has a lot to do with this. Uh, the t subtitle of my book is Rise of the Rural Ghetto on Prison Proliferation. Uh, communities, like I said, this is not a typical prison. It, I know there's a whole documentary made about you guys. I watched it, <laughs> Prison Town USA. Uh, I think they didn't do justice uh, to, they, they got a lot right in terms of uh, showing the complexity and nuance of your lives, but I think some of the ways they portrayed the town uh, wasn't quite, um, to, to be fair at that time, because this is 06, there's the whole way we're talking about prisons. Um, it wasn't quite fair, right? And this is a Republican stronghold, that's the other thing. So uh, Democratic legislators, Democratic state legislatures build prisons. It's a public works project, I'll make that clear. I put that in, on at the end. Democratically controlled, um, when a House, Senate, and a governor are uh, democratically controlled, uh, a, town, a state is more likely to build a prison. This goes back to the 1970s. This is also because most prisons were built in the South. Texas, for example, opened up 30 prisons in 1994, right? That, that doesn't, I mean, they're far and away the biggest uh, prison builder, but this was done during Democratic uh, governor's time. Right, and this is before the South became. They were Dixiecrats, and now they're fully Republicans. Right, so that that explains a lot of yeah, it. Yeah, but the Texas example, I think, doesn't quite fit in some ways because that was under a Democratic governor, but that was used to attempt to get um, blue votes in red areas. Like, yeah, those were very rural prisons in red areas. So, I, I think that's actually not quite the, the example on, on this one. Well, Texas still, it's a Democratic governor, right? It was at that point, yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. it's a Democratic governor. So there's two levels that this is happening at, and it's different time periods. So it's counties, county patterns of voting for, uh, in a presidential election, and then also um, state, state, uh, state party affiliation, who's empowered to state. It's two different levels that this is happening, but Democrats are proud owners of most of the public works projects in this country. Go back over the history, right, of this country. Those were Democrats who built these public works projects. 
And I think that's what people are missing. Prisons are, we talk about them being a private thing. Prisons are a public works project first. There's always privatization in the background with everything that goes on. We overuse private, we talk about privatization too much. The, the prototypical, um, the example we always use to talk about um, private prisons is Angola. That's the state prison at Parchment, the Louisiana State Prison at Parchment. Parchment. That's Louisiana State, I'm gonna say it again, Louisiana State Prison is being used to talk about private prisons, right? We have this image of what private prisons and what Democrats versus Republicans is supposed to be conservative Republicans and private prisons. These things, the numbers just don't bear that out. So um, we have a few different questions along the same lines here. Um, some of them are for, for you, but I think actually all of you could probably answer this. Um, so this question was, how does, um, how does your research square with Ruth Gilmore's conclusion that towns are, on the balance, not benefited by prisons? But we have a few other questions here about just in general, is it beneficial or detrimental to rural communities to open prisons? So I don't know if you want to take that first, but I'd I actually like to hear- I will let them talk, because okay. I have- I was gonna say, I'd like to hear from all of you on this one. Two on this, so yeah. So, um, I wasn't always, you know, I'm, I'm a recovering uh, political guy, I guess you could say. You know, it's, it's work-related disability. It's covered by the ADA, can't fire me for it. Mm -hmm. So, thank you. And, and so here's the thing. One of the things I learned, I worked for a Democratic congressman, it was his aide, in a rural area, Dennis Cardoza, down in Central Valley. And I was a senior appointee under Governor Brown. And there's propensity of states that have a certain type of legislature and governor but propensity doesn't mean exclusivity. There are plenty of Republican states that build prisons, Republican districts. There's causation, which means this does cause that specific thing to happen. And then there's correlation, which is this happens and this happens, but we can't prove it's because one of these other things is happening. Okay, now that's research 101. You can get three credits for that. If you come by the college, I'll sign the form. And, and it, But what it boils down to this is the reason, in my opinion, that Democratic legislatures build prisons more than the Republicans is because it's union dollars funding their campaigns. And I work for politicians. And I'm telling you right away, whether or not you yeah. like or don't like unions doesn't matter to me. I could care less. It is union dollars going to them saying, because they're the ones that are going to work with the unions typically, are the Democrats. And I'm not saying I am for or against them or for or against the Republicans. Frankly, you know, I'm an, I'm an anti-Putinist this week, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and I'll start that party next week, I guess. I don't know. It's going to be Coors Light, everybody. And, and, and I think ultimately that, you know, so much of what we have to look at runs back to follow the money. I, I, was, I was an intelligence officer in the Air Force. And when you're going through intelligence school, one of the first things they teach you besides don't ask any questions, we'll tell you what we need, you need to know, you ask questions later, is follow the money. Always follow the money. That's what they tell you in your reporting, too. Well, I, and, and in prison, man. Like, I've, <laughs> that too. I, these guys are teaching me, man. I'm telling you. But, <laughs> but there, there is some truth in that in politics because, you know, what, it, what is becoming increasingly clear in the state of California, it used to be in the state of California from about 1906 till about, let's just say, 83. End of Jerry Brown's second term. 
Um, he was governor when I was born. He was governor when my daughter was born. Go figure. You never get the guy out of there. And, and what was most interesting is that 1906 to 83 period, the, the net wealth of those serving in the state senate and the state and the assembly was higher in constant dollars than it is today. There's a problem there. I know, I know everybody says, I want people that are elected that look like me, that act like me, that make the kind of money I make, that represent me. And there's a little problem there because when you hire politicians that need other people's money to get reelected and do the things they want to do and have campaign money left over when they retire that they can then disperse to other things because of the way campaign finance law is written, you have people that are going to do what the money tells them to do. And so it's just a matter of who the unions work with. They typically work with Democrats, yeah. at least in this state. And, and I think that's got a lot to do with it. I really do. I think you're, you're correct on that. I've I heard, you know, sometimes friends say, well, I'm going to vote what's going to protect my paycheck. <laughs> and so um, most of the time, you will see, of course, you have seen uh, the endorsements from unions to our governor. So any governor that's running that makes it is usually endorsed by big uh, unions um, that will fund our campaign. So that is, that is one thing. Uh, the other thing that um, you were talking about as far as um, how it affects the communities, you know, we know about the census. You know, we know that that is one of the things that, you know, helps bring the revenue to small communities. Parlier is a small community. We depend on people to fill out their census so that we can get the funding that we need to be able to run a city. So when you have a prison in a town that is not very populated, but then you have all these inmates, like an example would be again where I used to work. You, I, when um, that prison was built, it was a population of 7,000. Then they had the prison. When I was there, they had almost 8,000 inmates. Wow. So that was when the whole overcrowding system, you know, the trying the AB 109 and, and releasing inmates and all that was going on. But those numbers help the um, cities like Avenal to get the funding that they need for infrastructure, for roads, for any of the maintenance that they need to be able to, you know, successfully run a city. And those come from the county. And when it comes from the county, from federal and state funds, they look at your population. So if you don't have the population, you're not going to get the, the funding. And, you know, that's what happens when there's a lot of little small towns that are unincorporated. They're at the mercy of, of a county to be able to fund something for them. I do see that a lot. And so what would happen to cities like Susanville or Avenal, they would probably end up being with not depending on a, a county to be able to fund them, uh, give them the funding that they need for their infrastructure, for roads or for whatever may come their way because they're not going to be the size that they were before. I think I asked this before when we got sidetracked. Does, so does Avenal see itself as a prison town? Because like some of the prison towns that I report on, like they sort of clearly are, but Avenal, are a little bit in denial about it. Like is Avenal is a prison town, and um, it's just like Susanville. There's really nothing out there. I don't know if you've been in that area, any of oh, you. Yeah. And so it's there's nothing. There's no way of anyone that may live in Fresno or in another larger city that's maybe 30 minutes away would want to live in Avenal because if there's nothing there, that's, there's not gonna be, 
you know, you're not going to attract anyone to come and move it to, to Avenal. So that will affect, you know, a lot of the funding state with, with state and federal funds. So I'm, I'm going to politely disagree with you. I've been here 24 hours and I found a lot in this town. <laughs> I've driven, uh, I ended up at Eagle Lake. Uh, I ended up in the National Forest right outside of town. Uh, there's uh, multiple coffee shops. Mm -hmm. It just may not be something you're used to seeing. So I, I, I think these folks have been gracious. No, no, no. Are you saying, no, I'm saying that the growth is here. There's no, no, I'm, I'm agreeing <laughs> with you on the growth. I'm about to get to that. Oh, okay. I see. The growth is here. The potential for growth, what they can do with this place in particular, I think is uh, Susanville is not a typical prison town because the level of infrastructure here is greater than I've seen and I've been to dozens of towns at this point. Uh, with the infrastructure that's here, I think outclasses a lot of these other places. As far as the what, what isn't here, I, I think we should turn the question around. When we count prison, when we count incarcerated persons, uh, in the little town of Forest City, uh, 14,000, really like 2,000 of those folks were incarcerated. I calculated that annually they get about a quarter of a million dollars, right, mm -hmm. from those 2,000 people from the state and federal, uh, funds. state and federal funds turned back to that city. So there's a lot in terms of what uh, the prison brings. And uh, going to the prison fix, Ruthie Gilmore talks about, yeah. uh, she focuses on precarity. She focuses on uh, the relationship between uh, what's happening in rural communities, and she looks at it as a way of taking away from urban communities. But like I, like I said, rural communities are suffering many of the same plights that urban communities are. Yes. And the other thing is, like a lot of what the standard story is uh, around um, prison building is based on theory. Um, and I'm an academic. I was trained at one of the most elite institutions. I adhere to theory. But I also believe in, you know, getting shoe leather, using shoe leather. So going and visiting places. And I also uh, raised $200,000 over the last 10 years cleaning uh, a, a data set with every prison ever opened in the US, all 1,663 facilities. I have a, you know that pin you get on Google Maps when you wanna go somewhere? I have every prison placed inside of a town and mapped on the US, uh, mapped across census data as well from 1970 forward. I actually have some, uh, version of a project that goes back to 1860. But I say all of that to say, we can talk high-minded theory. I can do that too. But at some point, you, when the rubber meets the road, I'm not talking about causation or correlation. I'm describing a population. I don't have to make these arguments because I have not small N for the academics on stage with me. I have big N, which means population. I'm not even arguing whether this is causation or correlation. I'm the, the, the things I'm telling you are analysis of a population of every prison ever opened in the US. Data set size. Basically. Data set size. Yeah, I, have, yeah. I have every, every prison in every, uh, 
and every U.S. Uh, census place, which you is can run a regression on it is big enough, right? Yeah. Right. There no, I'm go. with you on that. I, I, and this is the thing. I think John and I actually probably are violently in agreement on a lot of stuff. Yeah, because I know we are. And, yeah. and I think one of the big things you got to remember about Susanville, not necessarily John. I'm talking about everybody here. Everybody's watching me. Is this? Is that there's something next? And I think. The city, the county, the people that live here, me, have to learn a lesson from the justice-involved folks behind the wall. And this is what I started out with, which was education gives them hope. Mm -hmm. We have to have a reason to have hope in our community. And that is because we got to look and say, what's next, right? So one prison's closing. And again, I said it in the New York Times, what is not to celebrate about closing a prison? There's fewer people in prison. We can reskill the people that need jobs. And we, I mean, I can find economic development money for that. I, I have a fund. Um, I, can, I mean, I can. This is stuff we can do. But we also need to look at what, and here we go, you're like this one, man. What center of gravity can we draw to this region that creates some pull for people to be here? And my big thing is, like, we need a national cemetery, Right? There's not one between here and Salt Lake City, Phoenix, Portland. The ones in California on the other side of the mountain, what I call California proper, are, are near full. The ones in Northern California that are still open are in the last sections they've got. I worked at Vets Affairs for the state as the deputy secretary. These are things I know, right? This isn't just you know, wild, let's think about it for a minute. And they're not buying more land. They're not making more land in California. They're not buying more land. Um, it's too expensive. Where are you going to grow? You know, okay, what house are you going to knock down to bury people? And then you look around here, it's a beautiful place. And you guys nailed it, right? We have the right economic, commercial demographic here to support people wanting to come to a cemetery. Hotels, motels, restaurants and coffee shops, gas stations, good roads, and it's a beautiful place with plenty of water to keep the grass. And this is a discussion that I've already had with two members of Congress, one Democratic, one Republican. And I think there's interest in it. And I think we have to give ourselves hope again. Because, you know, th there's also the issue of, and I think you can learn this from people that are living in prison again, that there has to be something beautiful after something ugly. And I think that's a big thing for folks, is that they want to make something beautiful. And I think that's part of how we misconceive and stereotype people that get involved in the justice system. They want to do good things. They're not bad people. You know, whose sins are worse than mine? Like, oh yeah, you, you know, you're worse than me because that's a worse sin than mine. No, that's not how it works. People want to do good things, and I think corporately, culturally, helping Susanville heal from the experience of having a prison and then closing a prison with something like a national cemetery is just, I think, makes sense. I actually think uh, I'm crazy. I, no, 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 no. I agree with everything you just said. I don't. We, we. I knew we were in agreement after I read the New York Times article. But uh -oh. <laughs> I want to. You guys should understand uh, how you guys feel here in this town. I haven't talked to enough people about this, but I've been across rural America. If you feel like um, a lot of people in these big cities don't care about you. Uh, if you have that sneaking suspicion, you're right. They've told me, right? They've told me to my face when I talk about my research. I've had people tell me to my face 
when I say, if you wanna, if you wanna close prisons, if you wanna abolish prisons, you may wanna start with decarcerating, but what you're gonna, do, what you're gonna need to do to do that is to give rural communities some options. Yes. And they're like, I, I've had someone, I don't know, I'm, this is PG, so it's not too bad. I had someone quote, uh, gone with the wind. A younger black guy quoted gone with the wind to my face saying, and the words of gone with the wind, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. To my face, when I talked about the importance of investing in rural communities to, to give them alternatives. If it's a national cemetery, that's great. Um, my question is, what are the other local infrastructures that you, what, 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 what's the local infrastructure that's compatible with growth industries, no. right? Right, so you have to think, so how much investment would it take? That, so these are things. You nailed it. Yeah, so how you much investment it. would it take? And this isn't something you snap your fingers and change overnight. It's gonna take the will of the people sitting here. It's gonna take the will of your local, uh, local leaders who wanna project a path forward. You have an election coming up. I'm not saying who you should vote for, but I think one of the key questions you wanna, may wanna ask them is what, what's the path forward to bring the appropriate assistance to make your community competitive on the world stage in the next century. There you go. It, that's it, man, because infrastructure is the question, right? Yes. Because that enables everything else. If you don't have a road to get there, you don't have a rail line to move heavy stuff, you don't have an airfield to bring people in fast. We don't have fiber except in this building and my college. I can tell. What up? I, like, we need to talk about that. Yeah, where's, where's, where's the internet? That's like, where's your infrastructure? That's the, that's the next, that I, was the next big thing. I am. Um, okay. We have about five minutes left, yeah. but I wanted, I wanted to hear from you last. I was hoping that maybe you could talk some, as a mayor of a small town, what sorts of ideas you've had as to what could possibly replace a prison? Well, that's the question, is like, what does the community want? Have we even uh, considered to hear from them? Because um, I believe that the mayor here is actually doing, has a lawsuit against the, the, the governor because he wants to keep the prison. So I'm, a, I'm assuming that they're more in favor of keeping that because of jobs. It creates jobs. How are you going to replace thousands of jobs? I'm telling you, um, not just in the institution. You have all the other programs that are in the institution and also businesses that hire because of the Same volume of people coming into their business. So how are you gonna replace that? And to me, if, if it was up to me, I would go to my constituents and see what they want for us to fight to keep it here. Because honestly, I don't see how you can replace that kind of, that amount of jobs. It's thousands of jobs. The biggest concern I have isn't even the closing of the prison. It's the fact that, and I'm not gonna blame any real estate agents in the audience <laughs> right now, I'm kidding. No, he knows I'm not. There are a lot of outside investors buying up some of the nicer homes in town, and then they're sitting vacant. And so the driving population pressure behind that, right? So those are folks that, you know, you have a nice home. The expectation is the people that have the nicer home spend more money in the economy. At least that would seem, you know, why? It makes sense. And so if what's that institution is, is gone, eaten up by investors who are not occupying the town, right, in the hopes that they're gonna make money on it, except for the fact the prison is going, and then those places aren't available to fill it with people that are working and producing, doing something else, taking us to stage next, 
it, it becomes like, you know, in an airplane, an incipient spin. It just gets faster and worse as you go. You go downhill more. Yeah. yeah. So he's saying in addition yes, to it the will. institution. Yes, exactly. Right. So the vacancy rate, that's something that's, I that's, found. The yes, vacancy okay. rate does drive yes. this as well. But you can't go out and get one industry. Yeah. I just Daniel, wanted to say. I wanted one last thing. Just then, one thing to say. You are very important because you are the first rural institution to close if, they, if that happens. The next will be probably Avenal because I can tell you those conversations have been taken several times years ago when I was there, they were already talking about closing Avenal. So you'll be the first institution. So other cities need to see and look at what's happening here because they might be next. And okay, well now we just go down there and argue with each other apparently. Okay, okay that works. <laughs> All right, well All right. thank you guys. Thank you guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having me. Uh -huh.